Hey out there, rock and rollers. Welcome to the 140th episode of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast. Brought to you by me, your host, Mac B. The Wolf, and I will be joined, as always, by my partner in crime, Gary Action Jackson from the East Coast of the United States of America. And we got to thank you for tuning in lately, folks. You've been doing great work for us. Our downloads have been great. Our streams have been great. And we really appreciate that from you. Episode 139 was about our trek to Europe to see Iron Maiden on the Days of Future Past Tour. Jackson's first two Iron Maiden concerts ever were in Amsterdam and Antwerp. Checking out the boys on that amazing tour that they're doing right now. Not to mention the fun that happened in the hotel bar in Antwerp where we got to see and meet members of the band. If you haven't listened to that one yet, you gotta go check out episode 139. But between that episode and this one, we actually released a new sidecast called First Concert Memories, where we're talking to big fans about the first time they saw their favorite band or a band that changed their lives. And on our first ever episode, we were fortunate enough to have our Pantheon podcast brothers, Tom and Zeus, from the world's number one rated KISS podcast, Shout It Out Loudcast, to talk about the first time they saw KISS live. And what made this one even more special, folks, is that Tom saw... The Hot and Shade Tour 1990. Jackson and I saw the Revenge Tour 92. And Zeus saw the Alive Worldwide Tour in 1996. So it wasn't just one show you're getting a recap of. It was three shows from three different tours. We had great response to that, and we're so proud of it. Thank you so much for downloading. And if you haven't, hey, make sure you go check that one out. This week, we're hitting another hard rock album that is having a major milestone this year, turning 40. And that's Motley Crue's Shout at the Devil. Now, a lot of big, big hard rock and heavy metal albums are having big anniversaries this year, right? Iron Maiden's Peace of Mind, we reviewed back in March. Dio's first album, Holy Diver, we reviewed that back in May. Metallica's Kill Em All, we just did recently with Jay from The Hook Rocks. Quiet Riot's Metal Health, we reviewed earlier this year. Def Leppard's Pyromania, we reviewed a few years ago because it was big for us growing up. This is one, though, that was big but also still a little bit underground. I mean, it sold $4 million in the U.S. and got some airtime on MTV. But because of the name Shout at the Devil and the images of the band and the videos, Motley Crue obviously wasn't for everyone, but that was their intention. Nikki Six wanted to be famous, so he did everything he could, including the name Motley Crue, to gain them fame, to gain them attention, whether it be positive or negative. And some of the songs on the album you knew we're going to, well, upset parents, right? Bastard. God bless the children of the beast. Shout at the devil. Danger. I mean, these are things that young teenagers who are having a hard time, they're going to gravitate to. But parents, not so much. And maybe even record companies, record distributors, MTV. Some people are going to be turned off by this stuff. But that is what Motley Crue's intention was. Let's make a splash. Let's get people to know us. Good, bad, or indifferent, if you know us, we're famous, and we're going to get on bills, we're going to start touring, making money, which they will blow as quickly as they make it on drugs and girls and damaging hotel rooms, crashing cars, whatever. So we're going to dive into that here very shortly. Just a quick bit of business here, though. We'd love to mention that we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, a network of about 100 different shows all music-related, not all rock and roll. There's really something in there for everyone. And the great news is that Metallica is releasing their official The Metallica Report podcast 
through Pantheon starting this week. Really excited about that, and we hope to have more news about that here very soon. But you can check out PantheonPodcast.com or follow at PantheonPods. And of course, we want to mention our incredible sponsor, RareVinyl.com. Guys, I know that there are a lot of record collectors out there. And RareVinyl.com has over a quarter million items in stock, so you can go to RareVinyl.com and use code UGLY, U-G-L-Y, to take 10% off your orders. Now, they're based in the UK, but they ship all around the world. And we've seen a lot of folks ordering lately. That's great. That's a big help to our show. But it's not just a help to us. It's a help to you and your record collection to save 10% off. It's a one-time code, so you may want to go buy a bunch of things instead of just one or find that particularly hard-to-find expensive item. Then use code UGLY and get that shipped to you. You can trust these folks. They do an amazing job of procuring, taking care of this stuff, and then shipping it to you wherever you are. So if you're looking for something by Motley Crue, you're looking for albums, you're looking for posters, you're looking for point-of-sale merch, you're looking for tour books, singles, whatever it may be, go to rarevinyl.com. Use the code UGLY. Save yourself 10% on whatever you buy one time. Now back to Motley Crue. I have to admit, at this point in my life, I was about 10 years old when this came out. was not a Motley Crue fan. Just that name, Shout of the Devil, made me nervous. I knew, oh, my mom's not going to let me listen to that. And I don't know if I even really want to. I was kind of a good goody two-shoes when I was 10 years old. And some of the burnouts were the ones who were wearing Motley Crue t-shirts. I'm like, oh, who are these people? I don't even want to be like them, right? But as you grow up, your tastes change. And by the time Dr. Feelgood came out, everyone knew who Motley Crue were. And thanks to some clean production by Bob Rock and the boys kind of cleaning up their act a bit, that was their big success. Over six million sold four or five big radio hits off that album, and that cemented their status as rock legends and allows them to really kind of keep touring today. But it was this album, past what was basically the demo of the first album, old adage is you've got your whole life to write your first album, but you only got six months to write the next one. Well, they may have had a little bit longer than that, but if this was a total bomb, it could have been the end of Motley Crue. However, it was not, and thanks to MTV, and we'll get into the videos and the songs, it was a success. Now, you'll also hear us denigrating this a bit. Motley Crue is not known for their musicianship. Motley Crue is not known for their amazing lyrics or songwriting. They're known for punch, and they're known for their image and creating a scene. And that's exactly what you get here with Shout of the Devil. They're creating a scene, right? They're creating controversy. And from that, they're getting press. And when you get press, then you get to be on TV, then you get to go do tours, then you sell more records. And that's exactly the story of Motley Crue. Not the most talented band, but an incredibly famous, well-known band and beloved by a hardcore group of fans. And they're still going today, folks. They're selling out stadiums around the world. Yes, it's a co-headlining bill and they need a little help from the undercard as well. But hey, they're still doing it. They're still on private planes. They're still playing to tens of thousands of people, even if they need a little help piping the music in behind them. Let's not focus on that, though. I do apologize. I sound like I'm in a cave for part of this. Had some audio difficulties. I appreciate you bearing with me on that. We will get that fixed. So let's get into Shout of the Devil by Motley Crue as it turns 40 right here on The Wolf. Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. 
Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. All right, so it was your idea to do Motley Crue, Shout of the Devil, wasn't it, Jackson? I believe so, yes. And so, I mean, I know it's it's turning 40 this year. September 23rd, 1983 is when it was released. So it's, you know, it's a month, maybe a little more away as we're recording this. Was this one that you owned as a young man? I never, well, okay. I own this one on, on a bootleg tape somewhere. Okay. Um, but I do remember... Looking through this, they were saying that the original artwork for it was the pentagram, the black pentagram. Right. I don't ever remember that. I remember never saw that. that. Yeah, I guess I, that was a f- real quick first pressing. I remember the the four pictures, mm-hmm. and just remember thinking like, was Vince like, was that a woman or what's going on here? And then <laughs> Nick Mars looked like some kind of monster person. I know. And then Nikki. As the name Nikki, so you're like, oh, that's a girl with their yeah. hair all teased up. They got a chick in their band, really? Like, yeah, what, pretty tough for a chick. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, it was called "Shout at the Devil." So right off the bat, you knew that was a you're in trouble. you couldn't, yeah, you couldn't <laughs> bring this home, or you know, you could, you definitely couldn't listen to it without headphones. And it just, I think, it just fed into the whole Motley Crew legend that was being built because. I mean, as we've discussed a million times, they didn't. We didn't have the internet back then, so you kind of just knew bits and pieces. Like yeah. I think these guys are crazy, and mm-hmm. there's all you know. They all they do is party all the time. So I think all of that con- uh, contributed to the kind of the legend of this record. Yeah, but you didn't have it when you were like ten or eleven when it came no, out. You no, got no, it no, in no. like high school, right? Correct, correct. Yeah. So I mean, really, all I knew about this was you know uh, probably, and I'm trying to remember like the MTV days. Like I remember seeing "Looks the Kill," but like not, it wasn't in heavy rotation. Like you had, it was a kind of like on at night. Like they didn't play this during the day. Yeah. And so again, it was like, oh, you know, what if I stay up late enough, maybe I can see something that's going on here. But yeah, no, I never had a copy of it at the beginning because, yeah, I would have been thrown out of the house. Yeah, and I wasn't into it at all. And, and, and I never saw it on TV. I think Smoking in the Boys Room was the first time I saw Motley Crue on MTV. Okay. Which would have been like 1985. Right? They, they yeah. were pretty good, Motley Crue, about hitting all the odd years in the 80s. They did records like, you know, Too Fast for Love was 81, Shout of the Devil 83. Theater of Pains, 85, 87 was Girls, 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 and 89 was Dr. Feelgood. Mm-hmm. 
And then 91, when we went to college, was Decade of Decadence. And I remember being at the record store and Harding bought Decade of Decadence. Like, really? You're buying Motley Crue's best stuff. Oh, that's cool. And I think that's the one they, they re-recorded Home Sweet Home. And so that was, that was a, I think that was a big hit again. Okay. And so, yeah, I could see how, you know, people would say, oh, I remember that song, but I never had Theater of Pain. So I'll just go ahead and buy the hits and go from there. Well, so my exposure being in the, you know, the lily white suburbs and listening to, you know, <laughs> Men at Work and Duran Duran and Michael Jackson in 1983, Lionel Richie, you know, stuff like that. That's what I was into when I was nine and 10 years old in 1983. But I went to Hanover basketball camp in Hanover, Indiana, which is mm. where Woody Harrelson uh, went to school. Okay. And, uh, you know, you uh, you don't just get uh, the upper middle class kids from the suburbs. You, know, you get all sorts of kids who can play basketball from, from all over Indiana and uh, Kentucky, stuff like that. So you bump into some kids whose parents really don't take an active role in their lives. <laughs> you know, except, yeah, go to camp so I get rid of you for a week. You know, shut up, you know. And I would see kids with the Motley Crue t-shirts on there. And I remember seeing, not the pentagram cover, but the, you know, the, the four faces. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the quote-unquote alternative cover, which I think probably outsold the pentagram cover like 10 to 1 or something. And yeah, you're right. You would see them with their hair all teased up and like they got makeup on their face or something on their face. Vince is a platinum blonde, Debbie Harry looking dude. Nikki's name's Nikki. That's bizarre. Mick is not cute, you know? <laughs> uh, and, and I'm like, who are these guys? And why do their parents let them wear these kind of t-shirts? You know, it's still Obama's boy. Yeah. Uh, and the thing was, you were, you were mentioning makeup, but it wasn't like kiss makeup. It wasn't like a... It wasn't like a different character. It was a, you were just trying to look, I don't know, tough, I guess is what it was with yeah. the, with like war paint or something. Well, Nicky wore the eye black when he played high school football. So he's like, yeah, this is what it's about, right? Yeah. Going, yeah. going in to, to, to kick some ass, right? I can't imagine Nicky Six playing football, but okay, cool. And then, yeah, so that, that's what, that was always the thing to me was they didn't, I didn't know what they were trying to do. Were they trying to look because again they were they were very frail looking people. Like Tommy was a he's a tall dude, but I mean right. I think he weighed ninety seven pounds soaking yeah, wet back. Exactly. Yeah. Just and then and then especially when you watch the uh the Too Young for Love video, like he is very, very the the height difference is way off, even with Mick and Boots. Mm -hmm. And he's just this very gaunt looking person with giant hair and just kind of a maniac. Well, the fact of the matter is, Motley Crue were never really about musicianship or even really the music. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> it's going to be hard, it's going to be fast, but it was always about the spectacle. I mean, you mentioned Kiss, and in, in doing our recent first concert memories, you know, one of the tags that I put on the show was being Kiss is is important. It, it's it's a lot more important than just hearing the albums, right? seeing them perform live with the bombast and the pyro and them flying through the air and the ace, you know, with the smoking guitar and all that kind of stuff. The, the drum rides are going up 40 feet in the air. That's part of the show. And if you don't see that or you don't understand that, you don't get Kiss, mm -hmm. right? And that was Motley Crue's thing, you know. They used to have low-rent pyro at their shows, like even in club shows in the 70s or, you know, when Nicky was in London or whatever, you know, acts he was in before that he would light his boots on fire he had that you know that 
Oh, yeah, yeah. That yeah. gel that, yeah, like, stunt people yeah. use. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Vince would light them on fire and stuff like that. Like, it was always, you know, part of a show, which is very L.A., too. Like, mm. you know, the entertainment spectacle and the way they dress. And I'm looking at these videos, and I'm like, yeah, with it, these videos must have been huge for them. Because I love Looks to Kill. I think it's a great killer song. But, like, the rest of the album, it's not amazing music. And if you look at the lyrics, oh, my God. God, it makes Quiet Riot look like geniuses, <laughs> right? I mean, you think about the other metal albums or hard rock albums that came out in 83, like Pyromania, which we did a couple of years ago, like Quiet Riot's Metal Health, which we did earlier this year, like, well, we did Metallica's Kill Em All, you know, mm. Iron Maiden's Peace of Mind. That's kind of like the intelligent metal, and this is just like, you're a dumb kid, but here's some dumb shit for you to listen to, basically. <laughs> Well, I think I think you I think you hit the nail on the head here. And I was you had mentioned in text conversations before this that you were not a big fan of this record. And I remember the, so. But then I'm looking at this thing; it sold four million copies. Yeah, two hundred thousand in like the two week, in first two weeks, yeah. like sold out the first press. Like, huh? Really? This is this is Baby Shark for adults, <laughs> or for redneck and, teenagers. Well, but well, yeah. <laughs> because when you look at these when you look at all of these songs the title is the chorus so right. after you've listened to this once you already know what's happening and you can you can be in the camaro singing along to these songs very very quickly there's not a lot going on here it's very basic the riffs all kind of sound the same so it's very familiar you can you can get into this a lot easier than you can metallica there is no you know 7 minute opus here Right, yeah, and you're not talking about anything too heavy, no. uh, and and yeah, and the riffs are pretty accessible and pretty playable. Like if you're a, you know want to be dirtbag guitar player, you'll hear this stuff. You're right. like, this is possible. This is achievable. Yeah. Correct, correct. Yeah, here's a garage band that made it. I mean, you know, do you listen to shout, shout, shout at the devil? Okay, yeah, I got that. I mean, I can, I can chant along with that. And if you were to see them live, like you said. I'm I'm ready to go here. I'm ready to to sing along with the band. There's nothing there's nothing too complicated here. To me, it sounds like Mick had one pedal and one guitar. Yeah, and just let it rip through the whole record. Pretty much, and he's like the best musician, basically. I mean, of of the of the crew. I mean, he's he's a lot older than those guys. I mean, mm. like a decade older or more. And uh, now, I I think Tommy is actually a heck of a drummer. Yes delivers a hell of a beat and, and keeps these things chugging and visually he's great too i mean you see he's always spinning his sticks or whipping yeah. them around the back of his head that kind of stuff so like visually and you look at the videos motley crew there's something to behold there. there's something to watch there they've got the cool outfits they're, they're strutting around stage they're they're doing poses and stuff like that vince has got his shirt off for the ladies and you know it's there's something to see but if you take that all away and you turn it down like, it, it's one of those albums, it's not music, it sounds better the louder it is. <laughs> but, like, last night I was listening to it again just to, like, do some extra notes for the show. So I've got it turned down in bed, and I'm just kind of listening without it at the level that you usually hear this thing. And I'm like, yeah, this is, the music on its own is just not that great. And that's why they have pentagrams, you know, on the album to create some controversy, you know. Mm. It's like, when the PMRC came along, they said, we're going to put a sticker on here that says bad language. And he's like, yeah, 
put it on there, you know, <laughs> that'll help sell the record, you know. So right. the first, I mean, to, and we always do this, we kind of give a background of where the band was heading into this album and at the end kind of where they would go. So they're 81 Too Fast for Love, which was, I mean, basically a demo that they mm-hmm. created that started a, a bidding war over there quote-unquote talent in the, in L.A., and they got like a millions of dollars record contract from this demo that they didn't even really re-record it. Most of Too Fast for Love was on that demo. And then they go out and they start touring with people, and they famously got kicked off the Kisses Creatures of the Night tour by Gene Simmons because of their terrible, awful behavior, you know? But that was what they were about. Like, we are rock stars. We're not here to, like, give a great show and then make sure we get rest for the next night. No, the show is the excuse to go do drugs and bang out shits. <laughs> and that's all they did, you know. And you saw the movie The Dirt, where they're, like, you know, peeing on the, you know, at the pool and, you know, just anything nasty, anything that'll get a headline, anything that'll outgross themselves or Ozzy, they're up for, you know. It wasn't about, let's make sure we're good at playing our instruments. <laughs> No, that never occurred to them. That's not even in the car. And it's interesting because uh, the producer, Tom Worman, I heard an interview with him and he was talking about how it was rough to record the vocals with Vince because he's not a great singer. He's got like a, he's got a very unique voice. I think he sings a lot from, from his nose and yeah. not like a his, traditional his stomach. Yeah. Yeah. Cor- like you're supposed to, mm-hmm. but apparently like he would just like, it, it was just rough shape all the time. Like he'd try to get him as early as possible because he was just going to, he had had that little bit of window when he would sober up, but before he would get drunk again. So yeah. it was, it was tough. Uh, he said he would record three tracks, like three of the same song and mm-hmm. then kind of splice that together to get the best of everything. Gotcha. And he said, Usually, usually as well, one side note here, he was saying that most singers can get done in about an hour of the mm-hmm. track done, you know, put, put together. Vince would take longer than that, but he was said working with Robin Zander from Cheap Trick, he could knock it out in like 10 minutes. He was just phenomenal. Well, it's interesting that Robin and Rick Nielsen eventually did like backing vocals on some of their albums down the road here. Like, why were they backing it up? I mean, I know that the boys can't really sing. That was one of my notes. It's like, you hear that shout. Shout! It, you really can hear like Tommy and Nikki like screaming, shout! They're not singing. <laughs> you know, they're just kind of screaming, shout, shout, and that's basically their backup, quote unquote, singing throughout mm-hmm. the album. So eventually, they had to bring people who could actually sing, so the album would sound better. Yeah, and and that's I think that's one of the things too that that maybe is the you know kind of the the red badge of courage on this one is that it does sound so raw. It sounds like guys in a garage somewhere recording this. I mean, I know this is the second album, but if you told me this was the debut album and they only had you know ten grand to get it done, I'd say that sounds about right. It sounds, right. it almost sounds like they recorded it all in one day. Well, and I love people who are now like. Vince is out on the stadium tour. It's like, oh, Vince can't sing anymore. I'm like, anymore? He, he can never sing, you know? And now it's yeah. just his voice is shot. That's all. Right. And, and that's what they were saying, too. People would get all bent out of shape because, you know, you listen to bands, you know, like the Eagles, and they could do it. It sounds exactly like it does on the record. Motley Crue was never going to sound like that because, yeah, you're right. He can't. What you hear in on the record is basically studio wizardry of... <laughs> You know, just taking, uh, taking, as I think you said uh, at the beginning, three, but you know, you probably end up with five or six tracks of the same record and then right. just cobbling that together. You're never going to get that live. 
No, no. And it, who cares? Because they're just they're blowing stuff up and there's lights Correct. going on. You got Correct. Tommy doing his and thing. You're, you're really just you're waiting for the chorus. That's the thing. Like, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, looks that she's got the looks yeah. that kill. You know, that's that's what you're you're waiting for the familiar part that you can yell back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. not my heart. You know, that's, you know, what I, I didn't realize that Nikki crashed his Porsche. It wasn't his Porsche. It was his friend's Porsche who he stole. Uh, well, he was wasted, mm-hmm. crashed his Porsche, and he, he hurt his shoulder really bad. And that's when he first got into painkillers, which would kind of help lead to his heroin addiction. <laughs> and Demi Moore, who was married, I guess, to her first husband, Scotty Moore, a guitar player at the time, was the one like, you need to go to AA. And of course, at the time, that fell on that ears. I was going to say, and he <laughs> said, and you need to mind your own business because yeah. I got this. Whoever you are, lady, I've never seen in one movie. <laughs> yeah. Or I saw Blame It on Rio, you know, so I've seen your tits. And so that's all I need, right? The fact that any of them are still alive is a miracle. Shocking. It's yes. shocking. How can the original member of the Black Sabbath and Motley Crue all still be alive? It makes no sense to me whatsoever. Because they, you know, they, they were trying. And I never knew that story about the Porsche either until I was looking at this record. They were trying very hard. Very hard to not be alive to kill themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. They were. You know the the thing about the what was it the monsters of rock where they nobody wanted them because they were just absolute animals and they mm-hmm. you know, they they had to bring them in separately and like put the trailer to the side or even lift it into the air or something right. so they could not be around anyone else. But the problem was at that point in time they were so big they were not kicking them off this show. It's going to be a disaster. Well, it was working. I mean, this, this yeah. press and this bad boy image, it was working. And then you, you look at the titles of their songs and you're like, bastard, shout at the devil, knock them dead, kid, danger. You know, this is going to appeal to the teenagers, you know, mm-hmm. and to, especially to the way we're teenagers. So they're like, yeah, this is, this is my band, man. Well, like, look at them. They're tough. They like fight. They like screw. They do drugs. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, okay, but can they play? We're not worried about that. Yeah, exactly. And then they, they toured with Ozzy Osbourne, which didn't help their, like, cleaning themselves up. Or <laughs> but something I didn't know is that while on that tour with Ozzy, apparently the other members of the band were thinking about getting rid of Mick. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, they're thinking, well, we need more of a Eddie Van Halen, Yngwie, Malmsteen kind of guy to be in the band. And Mick can't really play that well. Not to mention, he's no fun on the road right like he goes to his hotel room and drinks a bunch of vodka because his back's killing him you know he's not out helping him get more girls he's not out doing you know coke till 7 a.m he might do it till midnight but he's not doing it till 7 (laughs) a.m like the rest of them you know like he's off doing his own thing and it was bob daisy who did dio you know dio's first album was 1983 you know he but he was the Aussie's basis, I guess, at the time. He's like, don't fix something that isn't broken. Don't kick out Mick just because you could use a flashier guitar player or someone who's better looking. It works. He's helping you make your sound, which he did and has. So, you know, I guess they stuck with Mick, which they probably should have. And to think about that is very interesting. Somebody like, <clears throat> I think they mentioned Ingve Melmstein, that just wouldn't have worked. I mean, yeah. Mick is the heart and soul. I mean, he he is the Motley Crue sound. He's chunky when he needs to be. He puts his solo in. I mean, he is the he is the sound of this band. To have somebody who was up there just shredding, I don't think would have worked because the rest of the music didn't fit with that. Didn't fit that, yeah. And and we talk about the music for the most part. Nikki writes 
all the music for Motley Crue. Right. Uh, and, and really all the lyrics too, which is interesting because his bass doesn't really come through like, ooh, he's playing some sick bass on this. It's, it's, it's like he's not even there most of the time. I think he's playing with Mick a lot, and that's how they form their sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he created a lot of these songs, was he and Mick together. But, I mean, he's, I give Nicky credit. I think he's actually pretty bright. He does a lot of dumb shit, and he really abused the hell out of himself and others. <laughs> but but I, I give him intelligence points. And, and obviously writing all these songs is a thing, you know. But, I mean, the lyrics, man, my God. Just, I mean, well, again, we're still early in the game here. Not that he would get that prolific later on, but... They wouldn't prove. Yeah, just a dude who he wanted to be famous and he knew that he he had the desire he just had to find the people to take him there exactly yeah take him to the top right correct correct and i think mick was a big part of that i mean i don't know how true the dirt was but i do love that where he you know they they the scene where they they meet mick and he they've got that other guy and he's like he's just not he's just not going to make it and so he just cranks it up and just blows the guy out of there and then Tommy's like how old are you anyway go fuck yourself because <laughs> I think Tommy's like 17 or something yeah yeah and, and what I and that was always the big thing too is that you know Tommy was 17 but Vince was only a year older so they were both really young and I think I think that what's Mick like he was born in 51 so I think he was 10 years older than mm-hmm. than Vince and 11 years older than Tommy so yeah at that point in time you might as well have been 100 exactly yeah you're 30 when they're 19, mm-hmm. something like that. But right. Whatever. Not to mention he looks older because he's in so much pain from his back condition. So. Right. And I think that was something that he kind of like, I think they knew that obviously they knew that he had that condition, but I think he hid the fact for a long time, how much pain he was in and what a struggle it was because he had spent so long in shitty bands trying to mm-hmm. make it. He wasn't going to, he was just going to shut his mouth and go along with that to stay on board this train. Right. Yeah, exactly. Hey, this is Tom and Zeus from Shout It Out Loudcast. And you are listening to the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast. Hey, folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. All right, now let's get into these songs. I don't want to take all day at this because <laughs> we don't have to dive real deep on those <laughs> And this is one that I never owned. Honestly, I've only owned... Motley Crue, best of records. Mm-hmm. I, I eventually got Decade of Decadence. I think I got it used at the Park Avenue CDs. And then a decade or however long it was later, I got Red, White, and Crue, which is a double best okay. of. Yeah. The first one is really the only one you need. The second one has maybe Anarchy in the UK and some stuff from like the first Greatest Hits out or something like that. But then it's like all the stuff, the, the Karabi stuff and the stuff they did in the late 90s new tattoo and stuff like that 
which it may not be horrible music, but it's just it wasn't popular, and I don't know it that well. Yeah. So to me, you really only need that first one. But still, it'll expose you to some of their latter-day stuff. That's a good one for the collection. Of them. But they start off with In the Beginning, mm-hmm. which is... And it's written by Jeff Workman, who was a producer from England, I think from the worked with a lot of big-time bands over the years. I don't know why he made this for them, because like you said, Tom Worman was their producer. And Tom Worman, man, I mean, he was the goods as far as a hard rock producer goes. Mm-hmm. I mean, we talked about him on this show before, and he was a smart guy and a bachelor's and an MBA from Columbia. And he discovered, I mean, he, he sent a letter to Clive Davis at CBS, and he landed a job at Epic. And his discoveries included... Boston, Cheap Trent, REO Speedwagon, and Ted Nugent. That's who he brought to the record company. He also tried to bring Kiss, Leonard Skinner, and Rush to Epic, but they decided, no, we don't want to, we don't want to work with them. We don't like them. So <laughs> Yeah, apparently at the time Electro Records was kind of a weird deal. Like they wanted to get rid of Molly Crew. Because they were, it, they wanted more highbrow stuff, and Worman was like, "You need somebody to pay the bills because the rest of this music isn't selling worth anything." And these guys, these guys can do it. And uh, I, Mick said something too about it in one of the interviews I saw. Like, you know, screw Electra. Like, we were the ones paying the bills, and they still treated us like garbage. Yeah, because Electra didn't put a lot in the marketing of it. Although yeah. those videos cost a little something, not a ton, but a little something. You know, yeah. those are on Hollywood sounds things. But look, Worman's got. Platinum albums and gold albums from Blue Boys to Cult, Twisted Sister, Striper, Poison, L.A. Guns, Dokken, Lita Ford. You know, I mean, people who were big in the 80s, and I think doing this record is what got him a lot of those those latter bands that I was mm-hmm. just mentioning. So I don't know where Jeff comes into the picture here, but he made it, and it's it's not really a song so much. It's it's like a it's like an opener. It's like E5150 for Black Sabbath. It, it kind of melds into Bob rules kind of thing and it it sounds like it's almost like a preacher giving a sermon about you know the end of the world and the children of the beast and stuff like that it's it's an ominous thing that basically walks right into shadow yeah and i was thinking like you know 1984 into jump like like there it's synonymous with that it's almost like i understand it's two separate tracks but it's seen as one like you're not going to listen to in the beginning by itself Right, yeah, exactly. You know, and it melts right into Shadow of the Devil, which is doom, doom, shout. Yeah. Big symbols from Tommy, big riff, and now we're off and running with Shadow of the Devil. They, and, and, you know, obviously there's controversy on this song, right? Because you're talking about the devil, right? right? Which gets everybody in trouble. They had the pentagram on there to try to create controversy, and it had to be taken out or put on the inside cover, and then you put the faces on the outside covers. You get into Target or Walmart or whatever. And I, that's that's one of the things I never understood being being a kid at that point in time with the with the PMRC was 
what did you really think you were doing here? Because that's the thing. You, if you say, "Hey, there's a lot of like crazy stuff on this. There's a lot of bad language. There's a lot of very sexual, very violent." Yeah, exactly. Well, of course I want that. What's wrong with you? There's no way I'm staying away from this. It's you're piquing my interest. So the think they were kind of misguided on all this. Exactly. The thing is, too, it's just an act. Like, I don't think anybody was really worshiping the devil. I mean, definitely not people that you wanted to model your life at, after for other reasons besides that. But it's just, it's all, it's just, it's an act. It's something to sell records. Like you said, the music isn't really that great. What else can we do to get ourselves out there? Mm-hmm. We can put the pentagram on there. We can talk. We can, you know, throw devil in there. We can, you know, children of the beast. And well, then, yeah, I've got to, I've got to have this now. Exactly. And you look at an article and say, the Filthy 15, where are they now? Well, I mean, some of them were the biggest acts in the world. ACDC, Def Leppard. It's like, yeah, it didn't hurt them at all. Judas Priest, you know. And then the King Diamonds of the world who needed help in America, you just gave them the help, you know. Right. You, you just put them up there. Like, kids don't know about it, but now they do, you know. <laughs> you know, it's like, and you missed some, right? Like, I could have found a lot worse stuff out there. But, you know, of course, they put Black Sabbath in there and, Wasp, fuck like a beast. Oh, you think that's going to offend people? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> you know? And it all came because Tipper was listening to her kids had Purple Rain. And eventually, Darling Nikki comes on. Well, oh, that's boy. a pretty sexually oh, suggestive boy. song. <laughs> it's not even suggestive. It's pretty, you know, in your face, like Correct. masturbating with a magazine right there. Though. Oh, okay. Yeah. So she's like, this is filthy. I need to do something about this. So that's where the PMRC came from. But I understand it's got the shock value of saying Shout at the Devil. This is not a great, great song. It's a little slow down in the middle there. It picks back up. You know, Mick shows off a little bit as a guitar player. Vince's voice is not amazing on this. You know, I can hear Tommy screaming, Shout! (laughs) Shout! He's not really a singer, uh, but he screams along in the background. There's not much to this song, and it's barely over three minutes. Yeah, w- without in the beginning. Yeah, and and I think that's that's pretty much every track on this record. I don't think many of them are over the three minute mark. I think that the whole album tracks in at like thirty four minutes, which is short for a long play album that they right. wanted full price for. I don't like. I really don't like Vince's vocals on this one. I think he's trying to sing. I mean, he can sing high, but I think once he gets up into that register, it's really, it's really just kind of him screaming. But the beginning part is cool with the drums and you know the the riff, and you know what's coming, and then you're ready to shout at the devil along with the band in your room with the pentagram on the wall, and you're there to piss mommy and daddy off. And yeah, if they get mad, then you just put that on as loud as it'll go and make them think that you're about to jump off the deep end and, and it's like okay so you're like okay well this is gonna be this is gonna have all these satanic lyrics and stuff like it'll be the blood between your thighs and then have you cry for more he put the strength to the test he'll put the thrill back in bed what 
might run scared for the door, but in seasons of wither, we'll stand the limit. Hopefully, you had those lyrics in the liner notes because it's hard to. It, there's a couple of there's a couple of things that you can pick out, but a lot of the stuff is is very hard to discern in that register. I agree. Yeah, I, it's not always easy to hear, and that's why the chorus shouted. It comes through so clearly, right? Correct. Danger, you know, comes through clear. So I understand why they started with that, but it's not their best effort. Now, moving to song three, looks to kill. Now we're picking it up, man. I've always yeah. loved Looks at Kill. This is a killer track. It's got a killer riff. If if not for Kickstart My Heart, I'd say this is easily my favorite Motley Crue song. And uh, I had not seen them live until the stadium show last summer. This this song kicks ass live because the, the riff comes on and it's it, you know it. And, you know, Tommy's back there beating the drums and yeah the again we're back to the chorus is the is the title of the song but that's the thing is you're yelling it back and yeah i mean this it came out in 83 and we're still singing it in 2023 yeah uh, killer killer song great riff from mick i like the chime gong yeah gong in there via you know acdc and then next year it would be metallica we put that into for whom the bell tells and it's a good solo from Mick. It's, you know, as far as all the stuff that he does on here, it's pretty, it's not real long, mm. um, but it fits the song, I think, very well. Vince is Lou Bucks. I mean, just he's just not a great singer. He might be a great <laughs> front man. I mean, watch the movie The Dirt. They're not like, we got to go out and get the best singer we can. It's like, we got to get someone like David Lee Roth. It's like, okay, we need a blonde singer with some moves. Mm -hmm. Not someone who can sing, not someone who can write a song. But someone who will be out front and get the chicks all excited. And that's what they got, I guess. I always like the part, you know, after the solo where they'll go, hey. I think you're right. They they built this band for the live experience, to for the you know the posters and you know to see him out there with no shirt on, even though back then it was not a. I think he could have done a couple more push-ups, but that's just me. Well, hey, he was he didn't have any fat on. You don't want yeah, to take his shirt off now. That's for <laughs> sure. <laughs> Phil Collins, Def Leppard can take his shirt off. Vince, you keep your shirt on. Tommy can take his shirt off. Vince, keep your clothes on. Thank you. They have a hard time having Tommy keep his pants on. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Great title. The song fades out. There's no like end to it. It kind of fades out. But we've got to talk about the video because obviously MTV was huge in the career of Motley Crue. It may have been bigger later, like for their next three albums, mm -hmm. like played more of an outsized role. But so here's the video. They're in kind of a, I don't know, post-apocalyptic danger zone, right? There's rubble and stuff everywhere. And there's a bunch of scantily-clad chicks kind of running around in a pack. And then here come the boys with big torches in their hands, herding them into this cage. And then they lock them in the cage. And then they, they make them watch their show. They watch them play, right? <laughs> 
you know, pretty cool. And they walk up to him, looks that kill. They got a stalk up to him, like, yeah, here we come, ladies. Then here comes the warrior princess, you know, hot girl shining her light down. You know, she shines on a mixed guitar, goes from black to white, ooh, for his solo. And she frees the girls. And then the boys are all kind of chasing her, trying to get her, but they just can't get her, even though Nikki and Tommy have her like back into a corner. Sometimes, somehow she slips away. Okay, how did that happen? So it's, it's, it honestly, it's classic early 80s because it gives you a little performance. It kind of tells a story, but not really. You know, it's, it's, it's classic early 80s. MV. And I think that was, I'm trying to remember now, when did Lick It Up come out? Because the, the concept was very much the same, even though that was more kind of in the day and this was at night, but it was the same thing. You know, chicks all over the place. They're, they're wandering through the wasteland with mm-hmm. random fires in different places. So I think that was the, it's probably just an excuse to get the chicks, but that was in the early days of MTV. There weren't a whole lot of ideas. They kind of just got recycled over and over again. Yeah, and I think the girl who played the Warrior Princess, a model, uh, Wendy Berry, might have been her name. She was in Rats Back for More video. So, uh, okay. Yeah, she, she, you know, she's a video vixen. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. <laughs> Although one thing Worman was talking about was he didn't really have, as the producer, you're not really there to tell people what to do. You kind of just guide them along and help them out. But one thing he did have autonomy for, he said, was tracking. And we've talked mm. about this before. Like, how do you put the, how do you put this together? And his deal was your number one song goes first, number two goes second, but then number three is the first, uh, the first track on the second side. So you oh, kinda, okay. and then and then you kind of backfill that stuff in there. So I don't know if that's true on this one, but just that idea of he came kind of came up with this formula of the the tracking is very important to keep people involved in the record. Right. And okay. then you know you can you got some holes to fill in there, but that's okay because you know you're just waiting to get to the next track. Okay, so all right, so Shadow Devil technically is the first track. Correct. In, yeah. in the beginning, the warm up or whatever, the intruder to. Pretty Woman. And then the second is Looks to Feel. I think that's their best trend. Uh, and it was their first single. They actually never did release Shadow of the Devil as a single, probably because it's called Shadow of the Devil. Correct, because nobody would have played that at that time. Right, you know, and Looks to Kill didn't, I don't think it did real well. I mean, it, 54 on the Hot 100, 12 on mainstream rock, you know, not bad. Not great, but not bad. And it was back with Piece of Your Action from the first album, which I actually like that song. Mm-hmm. It's probably the second best song on there. So, you know, it, it didn't break a lot of ground, but it got them some airplay, you know, and it got them out there. That was released in January of 84. Okay. So then you go to the third track. Now, I say, if you don't like Looks to Kill, it's, it's all downhill from here, guys. But the fourth track is Bastard. Right. Bastard, not even a three-minute song. This is what got them on the Filthy 15 because it's it's got violence, I guess. You know, some bastard screwed them over, so they, they wanted to get back at it. Mm-hmm. But this is actually pretty good as far as everything goes on this album. At, at first, it sounds very new wave of British heavy metal. To, like, it's something that drum intro. Yeah, and, and yeah. the riff, too, you know. But, you know, here's the chorus where you scream along to, Bastard! Yeah. You can see... Teenage boys are pissed off, screaming bastard, you yeah. know, in their living, in their in their room, in their car, you know, whatever. 
right because it, it's not a it's not a record producer or whatever to them it's you know your teacher or the old man who's not letting you do what you want to do so yes you can you gravitate toward that plus how cool is it to just be able to hey i'm just singing along with the song you know what yeah. are you talking about that's yeah. <laughs> there. You know, I mean, look, it's got a driving beat. It's got a pretty good riff. There's, there's just not a lot to it. I mean, out go the lights, in goes my knife. Pull out his life. Consider that bastard dead. Get on your knees. Please beg me, please. You're the king of the sleeves. Don't you try to rape me. So this is a, a, a record person who's screwing the band up. Right. Yeah. Um, Don't get screwed again. Whoa, whoa, bastard. <laughs> but they love singing bastard. So I, I get it. You know, quick as a shark, beast has its mark. You can't beat the dark. These are not going to win you a Pulitzer Prize. Right. But again, we, you know, we've kind of tucked this in on the first side here. So, mm -hmm. you know, we've got that and then we can move on from there. But I mean, I, you know, following up the best song on the album with that, I mean, it's, it's pretty good. It's a pretty good run here. I mean, and people like Shadow of the Devil. So now your first three songs, you're off and running. You're doing pretty mm -hmm. well. You, you kind of see how this might have sold four million in the U.S. and mm -hmm. five million total, or whatever it was, right? Okay, now it's getting a little, it's getting a little odd. Yeah. Now the fifth song mm -hmm. is "God Bless Children of the Beast." Correct. This is not really a song. This is like a minute and fifteen of Mick playing some pretty decent guitar. It's an instrumental for him, basically. I mean, at the end, he kind of says, God bless the children, you know. <laughs> Here's what I'm guessing happened. He was mm -hmm. working on this, and it's it's light, you know. It, it kind of sounds like a little bit of Close Your My Eyes Forever by I Ozzy and Lena. definitely heard that in this, yes. And maybe even a little bit of Fractured Mirror from Ace Frehley. Okay. Although that was ended up being like a five-minute instrumental or something like that. This is, you know, just over a minute. So they probably said, okay, well, that's nice, but that's not really a crew song, right? There's mm. not really a crew song. There's no big riff in there. But they probably didn't have a hell of a lot more. So they just kind of put that in there. So we, that's basically what it is to me. Yeah, it, it, you're right. It is only a minute and 30. Very short. I don't think, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I don't think there's anything else in there besides the overlaid guitars. Yeah. And then the, you know, the the spoken word at the end, which I didn't think you even needed because you could just put it on there no. and just leave that off there. We, I mean, I can read the title. That's fine. You don't have to reiterate that at the end. One thing, though, in looking at this on Wikipedia, at least, everything is 
credited to uh, Nikki, except for right. a couple of things like Mick wrote this. Okay. Right. And he wrote, there were a couple, what else did he do? Red hot. And that's about it. Although I don't uh, danger at the end. I don't think that that's true. I'm guessing that Mick probably came up with most of these riffs. Yeah. That, that's always the way I thought about it. Like, I, and then in the movie, you see, he, you see Nikki and Mick like sitting together to make the music. Yeah, and then like, okay, Vince, here's your lyrics. Correct. You know? Yeah, the, Vince was never. I mean, he's he he's credited on Red Hot here, and then Danger at the end. Well, and actually, Knock Him Dead. Also, uh, no, yeah, Knock Him Dead. But it, it, the story that, as I understand it, is that he was not, he was just kind of there to do what he had to do, and then it was back to partying. He wasn't there to really work super hard and put these songs together. Right, and he did help with the lyrics on Ten Seconds to Love, and you can tell we're going to get there. We're going to get there. But if you take out In the Beginning, which is a minute 13, which is kind of the opening of To Shout the Devil, take out this God Bless the Children of the Beast a minute and a half, you're not even taking out three minutes of the album. And now you've only got nine songs. Right. right. So, right. And then, you know, and then next, to finish outside one, is Helter Skelter. Now, this must have been the record company. I got to believe it. They say, oh, Nicky always liked the White Album or whatever, but I don't think he really liked the Beatles much. Um, <laughs> right, so I, I just got a feeling that they and they did release Helter Skelter as a single. I don't think they released it in the U.S. as a single mm -hmm. necessarily, and there may have even been like a picture disc or something to it. But it didn't. I don't think it did much anywhere. And honestly, it's not a very good. But then go back to what you were just saying. So take that out. Take Helter Skelter, take In the Beginning, and take God Bless Children of the Beast out. And now we're really short. We got eight right. songs. Maybe that yeah. was like, yeah. If we've got eight songs. Like, we can't. That's not a record. It's not even half an hour. Yeah. <laughs> we need something else. And you're, it, it, you're right. Maybe somebody from the record company said, you know, you know it, it, Helter Skelter was the big, you know, Charles Manson. And, you know, maybe we can make it veiled connection there that would work we need another track to put on this record we can't we can't just have 28 minutes or whatever it was right i know yeah and look aerosmith did help with skelter is it as good as aerosmith no like you heard you know he quote seasons of wither in the previous songs um mm -hmm. so it's like he was obviously an aerosmith fan yeah um, so it's like well aerosmith did it we can i'll give him points for heavy it's heavy mm-hmm you know, but not if it's very good. Mick's got a kind of fury film solo, but it's not very long. Vince is awesome. He's <laughs> terrible. You know, and... Well, okay, so, but here, you can actually compare them to someone. The rest of these are <laughs> originals. Well, the rest of these are original songs, right? So nobody, you've never heard anybody else sing Shout at the Devil except Vince Neil. You right. have heard Steven Tyler and the Beatles the party, sing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sing Helter Skelter. So now you can, now you can see, yeah, that's not really very good. The rest of it sounds okay. They actually do a pretty good job making it theirs, mm -hmm. but the vocals are horrible. Horrible, horrible. And apparently, there's a picture disc. They did a picture disc for the single, 
And it's a photo of a fridge with the title written in blood on it, which, you know, was that something at the murders? Did they write that on the fridge? Oh, jeez. Oh, I don't know. They at least wrote it on the wall. I don't know. But yeah. that's what that's what they were trying to capitalize. They weren't trying to, to do a great song. They weren't trying to do a tribute to the Beatles. Like, there's a man's connection. Let's do it. But I got to believe it wasn't necessarily. Okay, and that's side one, folks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't like side one, stop now. <laughs> Because <laughs> if, if you think Red Hot is the third best song, yeah. So, but that's how it starts off. But is is Red Hot starts off side two? What are your notes on Red Hot? Well, let's see. I said I like the drums at the beginning. The all right from Vince. They don't need that. We can <laughs> we can just listen to the music. It's fine. I thought this one kind of sounds almost like a demo, like an unfinished track. Yeah, but the lyrics are at well. The, I don't say the lyrics are better, but the, the lyrical structure seems a little better on this one. And in looking at this, it looks like he there, this one this was six Mars and Vince Neil on this one. Mm-hmm. So I think it, I think it had a little more depth to it. The song is not great, but I can you can see that there, I think there's a little more going on here than in some of the other tracks. Yeah. All right, so I'm, I'm kind of with you. The thumping bass, the steady drum beat uh, at the beginning are pretty good. It kind of has a ballroom blitz kind of thing to it. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 like I said, it sounds like there's a little more. It, there's a little more structure here. They're trying to actually have a song where the other ones are just kind of like riff, chorus, riff, chorus, back to, riff, solo, back to the riff. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. It's, it, but this is a straight-ahead rocker. They do pump in a little fake crowd noise at some point, which is. <laughs> <laughs> kind of funny. The solo to me sounds like he's doubling himself, which would be yeah. incredibly difficult to do live. And it's it's not exactly blistering. I, I think the song's pretty good. I, I don't know if this is the third best song of it. I would put Bastard out of it, for sure. And and maybe some of it. We'll, we'll kind of get to it. But I, I, I'm surprised that Worman thought this is the way to start off side two. I'm Paul Stevenson from Vintage Rock Pod, and you're listening to the Ugly American Werewolf in London. Moving to the second song on the second side, which would be the second U.S. single, "Too Young to Fall in Love." It's actually pretty good. It's it's not a bad track at all. I think the the um, drum beat that starts in that's pretty cool, and then you go into the riff, which is a little more complex, I think, than a lot of the other tracks. Yeah. And this one had kind of a funny, you know, like uh, Kung Fu, they're in Japan or something and they're, you know, going through the streets and, you know, beating people up and there's a story to it. It's, it's not, it's a little slower. I think that's what kind of kills this one as far as the, the rest of the album and maybe why this wasn't number three. Okay. Yeah. That could be why I wanted to be picking this number three. Right. Uh, yeah. Because Red Hot, first of all, it's called Red Hot. Secondly, it's kind of got that straight ahead thumping thing. You right. Know. Yeah, so so I get it, and I think they made the right call in, in releasing this as a single, which uh, they backed the technique to the top, also from the first record. What, 90 on the Hot 100, 26 on Mainstream Rock, 
I actually like the backing vocals this time. They're not just screaming along with two young to fall in love. It sounds like almost like singing. Yeah, and and I was I would say the same thing for Vince. He's not trying to get up in that super high screaming register. It's more, it, it, it's still not fantastic, but it is. It sounds better. You can understand what he's saying a little better. He's a little clearer on these. Fun, no, no. Yeah, uh, and it, it's real solo this time on this track. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we gotta talk about the video. So it's like I would say they're in Chinatown. They look more Chinese than Japanese. Okay, and they're just kind of hanging out, posing with a couple of Chinese or Asian girls, kind of tending to them. Then you, you know, they juxtapose. There's a girl in the street and she's being treated poorly, and so she's taken in. And a little Chinese kid sees that. He runs and tells Nick. And so then they go to kind of rescue, yes. Mm -hmm. So they go through this place, they go into the back, and even though these people are like well trained and have swords <laughs> and weapons and stuff, Motley Crue just beats the shit out of them, out of the way. And then they get to like the big wig, right? Like, okay, we're going to take our girl back. But it's like, no, she's happy to be here, to be his mistress, or to be, it would be a geisha if she was Japanese, but, you know, kind of be his courtesan but no. doesn't say anything she just kind of looks at him like i'm not going anywhere so i'm like okay fine we're at it and then tommy beats up one more guy on the way out just but, just because yeah it, you know like she's okay being with the pimp dude okay we're just gonna split the video might be better than the song um <laughs> you know just for its pure early 80s this and the fact that they're beating people up and i, I you know i i just kind of like i mean visuals are so important Motley Crue it's like just as important as Kiss uh, I feel like they, like the mm. video was like they were made to be seen more than they were made to be heard right and and I think it's I like the end part where they're kind of just posing and mm -hmm. you say you say to yourself well Mick's wearing some really he's still shorter than Tommy and Nikki and he's wearing giant heels mm -hmm. in this thing so yeah it, and and just the the costuming and the story in quotation marks yeah, I think it was a it was a a way to bring them into the visual MTV medium and yep. get people that way too. Because I mean, yeah, I maybe I don't own the record, but you know, I see it on there and think to myself, oh, you know, what's going on with these guys? These are interesting looking people. Yeah, exactly. You know, this is not like the kids I see in school. Right? So yeah, mm -hmm. and apparently it was Rad and Theft Auto. I know you play a lot of games like that. Like you're correct all day long. You're a felon and you're out like murdering people <laughs> and stealing stuff. It's amazing they can make those games, but okay. We were worried about Punch Out back in the day. Yeah, give me Super Techno Bowl anyway. Yeah. All right, so then, third song on the second side, Knock em Dead Kid. Well, you gotta love that title, right? That fits right in right. with everything else they're doing. That's a fairly good riff to open with. Obviously, I never knew the story, but it's about a fight that Nikki got into with some bikers who just happened to be 
undercover cops. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And then ended up like, I guess they, well, according to Nikki, they just beat him pretty badly, including like messing up his uh, face. Yeah. So it's interesting that that, uh, luckily that didn't uh, for him have any kind of lasting effects on him. But yeah, can you imagine that? Like you get into this and then it turns out they're cops and then they're really mad at you. And then again, how these people are still alive. I don't know. It's an aggressive song, the shout along, back of dead. Mm-hmm. But there is not much to it. And Mick's solo is sloppy and just kind of all over the place. Not like sloppy in a bluesy way. He's sloppy in a, okay, but we know you can move your fingers fast. It's going to make any sense. Yeah, I, I've got solo sounds out of place. I also have WTF is he shrieking about because I don't know. <laughs> not the dead. I mean, there, there's just not much to the song. I'm back and I'm coming your way. Well, now I'm supercharged, might just explode in your face. You're talking to a cop or a chick. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Take it easy. Yeah, I don't know. What's that all about? Lock of Dead, a Star Spangled fight. It's going to be a USA fight. Yeah. <laughs> I heard the sirens whine. My blood turned to freeze. You'll see the red in my eyes or take my disease. I, you know, it's the opposite of you. It's yeah. it's it's just not it's just not that much. Great, pretty good riff. Obviously, knock them dead. Everybody screaming along that. Correct. We're gonna get into that. You know, it's not made for me. It's not made for a fifty-year-old guy. It's made for a teenage dirtbag who's sick of living with his parents. It's basically Nikki ten years before this, right? Yeah, and, and and you know, famously, I don't know if I knew that at the time, but famously, you know, he came from a uh, he. I think he was out on the street for a while. He was in the foster care system, kind of had a rough upbringing, and or a rough childhood. So yeah, this kind of fits in with how he how he grew up. Yeah, no, his his father, you know, left his mother, didn't want anything to do with him, even though he had his name. He's Frank Trump Jr. Dad didn't want anything to do with him. His mom is kind of. You know, one of those women who's like, the only way she's going to get by in life is to have some man take care of her. Mm-hmm. You know, so she's kind of slutty and, you know, likes to party and will do, you know, whatever it takes besides work, uh, you know, to, to kind of get by. And he got sick of it. And in the movie, you know, he shows he like basically stabs himself, calls 911, is like, my mother just stabbed me, <laughs> you know, so he could get out of her house. But then, yeah, you mm-hmm. got to go in the foster system, which is no... <laughs> Bed of roses, you know. That's his life. It's amazing. It's amazing he didn't die before he got to Motley Crue. It's Correct. He kind of did technically die in Motley Crue. He did OD and was dead. For the, you know, they revived him. Nicky Six had died in mind, you know. And it was <laughs> ching, you know, there he is. They're, they're, they're showing the people like us who have this kind of lily white, cushy lives, you know, how dirty and gritty life can ruin. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, I remember having a conversation with, I can't remember who it was, but they were saying, oh, you know, Motley Crue sucks. They're the worst, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, they're actually kind of the best. <laughs> Especially when you think, you know, they, when you say, you sit down and you say, okay, what, what does it mean to be a rock star? You know, you sell a million records, check. You did every drug on the face of the earth, check. You were with 
any woman that you wanted to be, you lived in big mansions, you made a lot of money, you still have money, and you're still out on tour today. They check every single box. So, you know, if you want to say, oh, they're not that great of a band, they had the secret sauce put together. They're still out there doing it. They're still popular. They can still draw big crowds even today. Yeah, they're still rock stars. They just aren't <laughs> musicians. Well, and, and that's and that's the I think what's his name? Gene Simmons was saying that. He's like, there's a lot of guys that aren't very good, but they're famous because they can be a star. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of guys that can play their instruments technically perfect that never make it because yeah, the they personality, yeah. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And and I think that's the thing that comes through in this one is the personality of the band. That's right. So let's move on to song four on the second side, Ten Seconds to Love. <laughs> These are the right. best sleazy porno lyrics on the album, no doubt. My, my my note on this one is probably not something you want to brag about. Just saying, <laughs> it's not. It's not like it's only going to take ten seconds. It, it's kind of like okay, oh. now we're we're ten seconds away from gotcha. the end of the show. If you will. not not like this is going to be the greatest ten seconds of your life. Well, probably not. Probably. Not. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> and I kind of doubt it, you know, as much practice as they all seem to have. But yeah, no, it was, it's more like, all right, 10 seconds, start the countdown, because as soon as I'm done, I'm out of here, leaving town. So I'm jumping on the plane and I'm done. But I mean, at least it changes the riff a bit between parts. You know, when you say it's, it's like riff, chorus, riff, chorus, solo, you know, this one at least has a little bit of change in it. And it's, the solo is, it, is it's a bit flashy. It's not amazing, but it sounds like most of the rest of the stuff that they did on the album. This is one that Vince actually contributed lyrics to, and you can tell. If it's about, it's, it's straight up about having sex, <laughs> then Vince can contribute, you know. It's, you know, uh, just wait, honey, till I tell the boys about you. Bring a girlfriend, maybe bring two. I got my camera, I'm going to make a star out of you. Let's inject it. <laughs> Let's inject it. Pull my trigger, my gun's loaded with your love. I mean, you don't have to be a genius to figure out what they're talking about. Was it hot for you? Did you fire this round? The second I'm through, I'll be leaving this town. Well, you know, you're not going to get in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame like songs like that. But <laughs> it's it's not that bad. And, and then, you know, pretty decent little song. Okay, after the solo, it's like Tommy and Nikki doing some singing, talking, whatever, and then Vince doing some talking. And they shout along in the back before it's back to the big bombast with Nick. So it's, you know, it's kind of a goes up, kind of comes down a bit, comes back up. I would listen to it in the context of the album. My dad, I listen to it elsewhere. Yeah, and this is the first time the the drops out to just bass and drums. So you know, you were saying before it's kind of hard to hear Nikki play the uh, play the bass on this, and at mm -hmm. least this one you can hear. Yes, there is a bass track, mm -hmm. and it, it, it that kind of breaks the song up a little bit too. Yeah, and then they wrap up the album with "Danger" again. Mm -hmm. The title gotta have danger in there, right? So some ringing. Picking from Nick to start this, not just a big fat riff, which so that makes it a little different. And it's a little slower to start. Yeah. 
Vince is trying to emote on this one. Yeah, you know, he goes into the lyrics and I can't escape, and it builds, you know. Then the riff gets heavy on danger, you know. It's a little different from the rest. It's got some heavy building towards the end. Kind of talk about Hollywood danger, like this is what we live, and there is real danger to this, you know. You can get beat up, you can die, you can mm. get killed and murdered, and so can girls straight off the bus trying to become starlets. There's danger in this lifestyle, and I think that appeals to you know a lot of the people who were who were listening to this record. Well, and especially if you were someplace like you know you're talking about the kids in Indiana, you know you're kind of living in a small town, and I mean even even I lived in a town that was it was close to New York, but it was still it wasn't New York City, and you, you kind of build this nasty, sexy appeal to Hollywood. Like you knew that like ooh, it looks nice, but it's got a very nasty part to it underbelly and so that kind of just that led to the lore of wow man that place sounds awesome yes but it's you know it's taken more lives than it's it's made i think Mm -hmm. that's for sure you know but you know again the lyrics i mean you know me and the boys made a pact to live or die no turning back scarred for life all my best friends died lost my mind it made me hate this is nicky this is nicky's life you know right Um, yeah tattooed lies distance eyes hollywood been 10 long years Tears and fears, the end is here. Yeah, I mean, you know, and he did die, technically. So, but I mean, the song, hey, it's a good way to wrap up the album. Danger, talk, you know, warn about that kind of stuff. Now, there are some other songs that they did during this period. Black Widow is one that ended up getting onto that Red, White, and Crew. Best mm, of okay. I Will Survive is one that didn't get that didn't get put on the record. I think Mick and Nikki did it together. I don't want to go into them too much, but it's like, but they weren't good enough to make this record. They weren't <laughs> bad. There's some other songs that maybe became different songs later, but, you know, just to kind of take it on its merits. I don't love the album. There are some good songs that stand out here, but, you know, they only sold one million or so in the first album. This was four million in the U.S., you know, mm-hmm. and then Theater of the Pain sold four million, and then Girls, Girls, Girls sold four million. And then Dr. Feelgood sold more than six million US and I think more than ten million worldwide. That's obviously their big one. But that was also after they cleaned up and got Bob Rock. Correct. Uh, yeah. and did it an incredible tour. I mean, they toured the hell out of that record. They have burned themselves out. And honestly, they didn't do a whole lot that was great after that. This is a record that kind of set them up for success. I mean, if you sold a million and then a million more. That's still good. And it, it, this kind of music, you know, quite right, would love to sell a million and then a million more, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Dio would like that a million and then a million more. So it was like, uh, you know, this 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 set them up for the success they would then start to have with theater of pain, getting more stuff in the top 20 instead of just the top 40, and then girls, girls, girls. And obviously, Dr. Flynn was the big one. So I don't know. What, what's your take on the album as a whole? Well, and, and it's interesting to look back on it now. You know, you you saw what they did with Doctor Feelgood, and that was kind of the that was the record that I think introduced a lot of people who had kind of heard of them before, and then they kind of worked it backwards. This was definitely it. It still had a lot of it needed a lot of polishing the the songwriting that they would eventually do. And you mm-hmm. mentioned bringing Bob Rock in didn't hurt. But I think this one also kind of opened up the the whole Sunset Strip sound. Also, there were a lot of bands that made it. Because yeah. of this record, because record companies said maybe Electra wasn't super excited about them, but there were other record companies that said, We want this. This is the sound of the future. We want bands like this. 
Right. Yeah. Well, we got to get your album to sound a little bit more like Motley Crue. Kind of Correct. And yeah. You hear, you know, people talking about it now. Oh man, they they set the tone. They made it so awesome. They're da 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 da. I'm like, what? You know, there's some of this that sounds bad. You know, it's, <laughs> it's not but, that great. But, but in 1983, this was more groundbreaking than I think we give it credit for now. Yeah, it was it was sleazier. Yeah, um, you know, it was just not what you heard on the radio. That's for sure. You know, and so yeah, to bands of that ilk who were trying to make it in L.A. I mean, Motley Crue was making it in L.A. Right. Right. I mean, we talked about our show with Jay Scott on Metallica's Kill It All, which came out in 1983. They were supposed to open for Saxon at the least, but they were too big to do that at that point. So they had to go do a much bigger gig, and then Metallica got one of their first big gigs. <laughs> opening for Saxon at the Whiskey, you know. Uh, yeah. So, but that just shows you Motley Crue was starting to take off at this point. They're starting to explode. They're starting to get big. They're on MTV. They're doing big headline tours with like Kiss and Ozzy Osbourne and stuff like that. Whereas Metallica, here they are. They're kind of underground. Nobody knows who they are. They're not on MTV. They're not on the radio. But they're starting something that's going to be way bigger. Right. That, that would last for, you know, seven or eight years after that. I mean, I, I understand that once grunge came in, that pretty much shut everything down. But except, I mean, Metallica. They, we, except for Metallica, yes. But they were I mean, they were on top for all of those records. They just kept getting bigger and bigger up to Dr. Feelgood. That's right. That's right. You know. So, yeah, that decade of decadence, it's exactly what it was. You know, it paid off in a huge way. They sold like 100 million records around the world. <laughs> yeah. And that's why they're still flying private jets today. Yeah, well, yes, but they're on a stadium tour as a co-headline act. You know, sometimes Def Leppard plays last, sometimes they play last. I think musically they can't hold Def Leppard's job. Correct. But, you know, live, as long as they pipe in all the vocals and pipe in most of the other stuff, you know, yeah, they, they still put on a show. But, you know, Metallica's doing stadiums basically on their own, whereas Crew is playing stadiums co-headlining with Def Leppard, and you get Poison, and you get Joe Jett, and you get another new band. You know, so they well, need the patch. And could Motley Crue do two separate shows within two nights? No, they could not. They've got one. Barely do one. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That's, yeah. Correct. But hey, look, I'm glad Crue's still going. I'm shocked that they're still alive. I'm shocked <laughs> that he's still alive. Even though he's not in the band anymore. Apparently, they're permanently banned from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I'm like, you know what? That's BS. Because they're famous. It's not like nobody knows who Motley Crue are. Right. Like, they're super famous. And they sold 100 million records. Did LL Cool J sell 100 million records? You know, did the Talking Heads sell 100 million records? And you couldn't wait to put them in. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's yeah, it's it's a popularity contest. And it's one crap. person who definitely controls that. But yeah, I, I mean, I think at this point in time, they don't really care. They're doing what they need to do. So I think they're okay with not being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, but I think they want to be. I, I think they want to be. And I honestly, they probably deserve it. From, from their from their appeal, from their cultural significance, from their record sales, and from their longevity, they're playing stadiums four years after this record comes out. Yes, and, pre and pretty much never look back. that, folks, is our take on Motley Crue's second album, Shout at the Devil, released in 1983, with the big hits Looks That Kill and Too Young to Fall in Love. Obviously, if you listen to the show, 
You know, it may not be our favorite album of all time, and that's okay. We still love Motley Crue. We still love what they mean to rock and roll. We still love the role that they have to play. But I believe their talent wasn't really in musicianship or songwriting so much as it was creating a spectacle, getting headlines, right? Getting people to look at them, getting people to notice them. Some would say for the wrong reasons, but like they say in Hollywood, there's no such thing as bad publicity. And that is a fact, my friends. And Motley Crue may be the epitome of that. They've all gone to jail. They've had drug problems, lots of divorces, but also lots of platinum selling records, lots of tickets sold around the world. And this was the album, honestly, that really kind of set them up for the great success they would find later with Dr. Feelgood and the tour that ensued. And it's really part of the reason why they're still going today. Now, I apologize that some of the audio was a little screwed up there, folks. Look, I've been moving a lot. We've got a lot going on. I apologize for that. I don't love the fact that I might have sounded like Charlie Brown's teacher throughout some of that episode. But I appreciate you listening anyway, and I think for that you deserve a reward. So you ought to go now to rarevinyl.com, use the code UGLY, and save yourself 10%. And they got some great Motley Crue stuff there. I thought I saw a great picture disc box set of the first five albums that would be an amazing addition to your Motley Crue collection. So go to rarevinyl.com, use code UGLY, save yourself 10% on that or any other Motley Crue or really anything that catches your eye on rarevinyl.com are amazing sponsors. So as usual, folks, we want to know, did we get something right? Did we get something wrong besides the sound? Did we miss the point? Did we leave out your favorite part? You've got to let us know. You email us. It's UglyAmericanWerewolf at gmail.com. You let us know the bands, the albums, the concerts, the DVDs, the books, the rock properties you want to hear us talk about. And as usual, we want to thank you for downloading, subscribing wherever you get your podcast. If you're thinking about it, folks, what would be huge for us is for you to give us a positive five-star rating wherever you get your podcast. It just helps us find more rock and rollers like you, helps us climb the charts, and helps us find more guests to come on the show. You can also support us not only by going to rarevinyl.com and using code UGLY, but going to our shop on my Shopify. You can find it on our Twitter page at ugly underscore werewolf. Follow us there. Follow Action Jackson at ActionJack72. You can see us on Instagram. You can see us on threads. You can see us on YouTube. Somewhere on Facebook, we're there. And we appreciate you being part of the show. Next week, we've got more special guests, more albums to review that you're going to love, hitting some big anniversaries, all sorts of fun stuff happening at The Wolf. We're really proud of some of the stuff that we've got coming up, and we appreciate all your support. So make sure you download and subscribe to not miss it. And until next time, to all you rock and rollers all around the world, be cool and stay safe. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 